0: Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to another marvellous Trademark Podcast. I'm joined again by Dr. Sean Byers, Mel Corey, M. Phil. Sean's stuck up in Belfast. Mel's in Lurigan, and I'm here in the county down. Today, we're going to continue our series. Could be any worse. We're going to shut up when I'm talking, will you? We're going to continue our series on a worker's guide to historical capitalism. I think this is part five. We ended up the last one at a very important juncture. It was the end of the Second World War. And we talked briefly about the Western responses in particular to the great depression of 1929 and the Keynesian response of the American government in the 1930s uh, that included radical departures for capitalist states in terms of providing, you know, welfare state and free education and massive fiscal stimulus to try and regenerate the economy. Um, That was interrupted by the second world war. Some would say saved by the second world war in terms of what it did for the American economy. But we're now in 1945, uh, the war has been won by the Soviet Union with the uh, assistance of Britain and the United States, um, and we're going to look a little bit now at the period that follows that. The period is is kind of characterized by two terms. One is the welfare compromise, that period in the 1950s and 60s, and the other is characterized by the term the golden period. This was known as the golden period of capitalism. So Mel, what does, uh, what happens in 1945? What's the Let's look at Britain first. What what happens 45 onwards?
1: Um well if you if you can imagine and it's hard sometimes to imagine just the devastation that was created um right across Europe and Britain and indeed um the north of Ireland at the time um uh, did suffer some German bombing, but the the infrastructure and then the cities were, were um just flattened. I mean there was the an absolute need for total reconstruction of the whole continent and, and indeed um other parts of the world as well. Um, and the in 1945, the first chance of the British working class um, got to send a message to their greatest war hero, Winston Churchill, the man who delivered them from, from the jaws of, of um, Hitler, uh, was to say, thanks very much, Winston, but we don't want your type of world anymore. We want to create something different. Um, we want to, the people to remember the promise of Lloyd George in 1918, where he said we'll create a, a land fit for heroes, which of course never materialised. But the, I suppose the example um, of a society that, that could work and could change with a dif- different economic uh, philosophy um, was tried out before the war in America with the, the New Deal. So it was a, a, really a, uh, at the time a triumphant victory for the Labour Party in that post war election which um, created a whole new set of circumstances.
0: So, Sean, it was, a, it was considered the, the birth of the welfare state in Britain and um, was considered a victory for the left, I suppose, a victory for trade unionism, for socialist thinking. Um, was there a genuine fear in capital in the West of the Soviet Union and of the kind of the solidification
2: of those left-wing ideas?
1: Yeah, well, I suppose the,
2: they understand whether it's a victory or a or a compromise, um, as it's often described, uh, you have to understand the factors that, that led to its creation. Um, uh, in the West, of course, the, you had the consolidation of the communist system in the Soviet Union, um, both in material terms um, and ideologically as well, its stock grows in popular thinking due to the Red Army's role in crushing Nazism. Um, in countries like France and Italy, the Communist Party uh, membership expanded the, to millions, um, and the French and Italian Communist parties entered, entered government. In Yugoslavia, um, where the resistance, the partisans play, also played a major role in defeating fascism, uh, those parties actually emerged from the war uh, taking power and once they kicked the Nazis out. Uh, so they had the spread, or at least the consolidation, of communist ideas. And you had workers in the West were looking eastwards and saying, maybe we would, we would like a bit of that. Um, and that combined with the sort of growth of trade union militancy, the leftward shift in political attitudes that Mel describes, and the memories of the interwar years and so on, shifted the balance of forces in favor of labor. Um, and capital sort of understood this and understood that it needed to enter into a compromise that would stave off the threat of, of communism and, and rescue the system. Yeah, and it was uh, it was known as the golden period, or the Ke- also the Keynesian
0: period. Keynesianism, a kind of a form of uh, capitalism that sought to intervene in the state. but what were the key characteristics of Keynesianism that we saw, particularly in Western Europe?
1: Well, I suppose Keynes Keynes's big thing was taking a um, a macroeconomic approach to to dealing with the economy. Um, so looking at looking at um, uh, taking a step back from the, the intricacies of, of how um, the economy has worked out and, and, and taking a, a sort of more broader view, um, which in that, in that context then, during the war, there was greater industrial militancy. Strong trade unions were able to create um, uh, some level of, of worker democracy. So there was a greater input of labour into the decision-making process at that particular time. Um, and then, of course, the the um, the victorious Allied powers came together and in, in Bretton Woods and set out set out their formula for going uh, going forward with it.
0: So, well, what were the what were the key elements of Bretton Woods, and why was it important?
2: Well, the Bretton Woods agreement was an agreement between the, the major powers uh, of the West and, and Japan. And basically, what they had des- decided to do was uh, come to an agreement on trade cooperation um, the management of exchange rates, um, and importantly, uh, capital controls, uh, they introduced a thing called capital controls, which was to prevent the rapid and hot flow of, of capital, of money in and out of countries, which had a hugely destabilizing effect, um, up to the, the wall street crash and, and after that, um, what it also did was, uh, they established two institutions known as the Bretton Woods institutions. Um, the World Bank which was conceived as a development bank and the IMF which was sort of a, a crisis lender of, of last resort. Um, both of those institutions were dominated by the U.S. and, and still are um, with Germany and France and Britain close behind. Yeah, uh, we, could,
0: we could probably learn a lot couldn't we from some aspects of Britain Woods now. I remember the idea as you said that foreign direct investment would be targeted if it was going to happen at industrial development and infrastructural development and wouldn't be for bond markets and property markets and speculation that it would be used to benefit if you like the whole of society rather than just a particular class of society
2: yeah it had a hugely stabilizing effect uh on the on the global economy and it ensured that the uh the speculation that was seen in the in the bubble that, that brought about the crash that eventually led to the Second World War uh, was was severely restricted uh, and limited, and the capital was channeled towards productive ends.
1: Yeah, the the, the I suppose the other thing is that um, the Allies had had realised the mistakes that were made in in Versailles after the First World War, which created the circumstances for for Nazism to flourish. So there was an imperative to make sure that Germany and and Japan weren't left behind, that they were um, provided with an investment. Um, and I suppose um, you can also see the um, the start there of the the early burthens of, of uh, what eventually turns out to be the European Union. Stevie? Yeah, it's, often, it's often
0: forgotten that um, the Soviet Union attended the first few meetings of Bretton Woods as well. They were interested in being involved in uh, this new international network of trade, but when they realised that the... The, the Yanks insisted on the dollar being used as the, you know, the, current, the reserve currency of the planet. That The Soviet Union walked away. At. Of course, even Britain and France were a bit resistant to some aspects of Bretton Woods, but they um, were reliant upon the Marshall Plan and the billions of dollars worth of loans that were coming in to help rebuild Britain and France. So they were kind of forced into, into that
2: position, Sean. Yeah, Bretton Woods can be seen as one uh, element of the emergence of the US as the new global empire. Um, so the U.S. Hadn't, hadn't been really affected in terms of the devastation that, that France and Britain suffered in Germany during the Second World War. Uh, they had actually expanded economically and militarily. Um, and at the same time, as you say, the, uh, the countries of Europe uh, were in need of, of capital. They were in need of finance. They're heavily indebted, in need of finance, capital. They're in need of support. To reconstruct, to rebuild their countries and rebuild their economies following the war, and the Marshall Plan uh, gave the US that opportunity to give the US that in um, to to find, the identify channels for their surplus capital, um, but also to extend their political and economic influence right across Europe. Of
0: course, we shouldn't forget that it was also the, you may have mentioned it, Sean, I probably wasn't listening to you as usual. The reintroduction <laughs> of the gold standard and the linking of the dollar to gold so it became you know it became commodified money as we understand it that every dollar you held in your pocket was literally worth a small slice of of gold i think it was 38 dollars an ounce was the was the was the peg they pinned it to and that was part of that stability of the post-war period that led to that as you said the golden period um and we'll get on later on with what happened whenever they broke the link with gold but that was quite crucial at the time the other thing to mention i suppose during all this period is that we often forget, and even when we teach this, we often forget to talk about it in any depth, is um, there's often uh, a debate about, well, this wasn't just a victory for the left in the West, was it? Because America and Britain had large empires, and others would often argue that social imperialism was still a factor, and that indeed the post-war Labour government was, as Lenin said, socialist in word, imperialist in deeds. And Britain didn't give give up its empire very quickly, and some would argue that the welfare state was built on the super-exploitation of the global south.
1: Yeah, but the the other the other side of that is, I mean, you have to understand what, um, what the welfare compromise produced for people. You know, all of a sudden you've got um uh, a national health service in 1948, which is very clearly in its opening documents, and still you can see pictures of it today, where it's very clear this is not charity. This is something that you pay for. The concept. Of welfare for everyone, universal welfare. Everybody pays something into the system. Everybody's entitled to get something out of it. A mass um home building or house building um program right across um all parts of 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 Britain and the North of Ireland, and free access to education um up to third level. And um, they're not minor things. They're things that made a, a substantial difference. Um, to people's lives, and uh, certainly, you, we, you, the I mean, it is worth looking at how it was all paid for, but it was all delivered by a Labour government, and I suppose um, it, it really depends on your aspirations, how you ju- make that judgment, doesn't it? I mean, for us on the, here, probably more left, we would, we, we would have looked at that as a, at the time as a stepping stone to um, control of the economy, um, the people on the right of the Labour Party, it's, 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 it's the only thing that they can think of, even today. Um, uh, they just wish they could get back to 1945.
2: Yeah, I, I, it's called the, the golden period for for good reason, because it led to a, led to a sustained increase in, in living standards. Um, it led to the, the only Period uh, in the history of modern industrial capitalism, where economic inequality declined, actually declined in the West, which was a blip, and it delivered all of those things that Mel pointed out. But even the Labour Party understood that that was built on the on the backs of labour and the exploitation of labour in the in the global south. Um, Ernie Bevan, um, who we're all familiar with. Who's was a Labour Foreign Minister, he understood that, and for that reason he didn't want to give up the colonies. He said he wasn't prepared to sacrifice the British Empire because he knew if the British Empire fell, it would mean the standard of living of our constituents would have to fall. Um, so he understood that. Um, but uh, but the, the anti-colonial trend had a- already been, been set in motion. Um, we sometimes forget the, the, what was happening in China, for example, in China, the, the Second World War was really a war of national liberation. It was an anti-colonial liberation against Japanese imperialism. Um, we forget that min- millions of Indians and Africans fought the Second World War on behalf of the Allies, and they were treated abominably. They were treated like second-class citizens, as they were in their own countries. They were fighting for the freedom of, of European nations at the at the same time that European powers were exploiting and oppressing them at home. Um, and That war fed into political consciousness that was beginning to develop across the global south and did an anti colonial sort of
0: wave. I remember uh, there's a great quote from Harold Wilson when Labour were in opposition after 1951, 1953, and he says, I do not think that anyone in the House, the House of Commons, would deny that the answer to our problems may well be found 1,000 feet below the soil of the colonial areas. Uganda has zinc, Rhodesia has copper. Jamaica has bauxite, Uganda has tungsten. It was quite clear that that kind of colonial labour policy was, you know, they weren't hiding it. They weren't pretending it was something other than it was, which was massive exploitation of the fucking empire. And that's what would pay for the welfare state in the West. And that was the same for an awful lot of Western countries, I think, at the time. So we have to be realistic about that, about, you know, how how these things were paid for and, how, and, and on whose um, labour they were based. I mean, this to, even today in 2020, an awful lot of British and American GDP isn't created in those countries. It's created by low-paid garment workers in Bangladesh and by workers in, still in rubber plantations in Malaysia. So um, not much has changed since then. You know? and as well as that, there are, if you think about the role of the, of the British state in the, the, the massacre of the communists in Greece, in, as Sean said, in Malaysia and in Burma, I think they actually used Japanese troops at one point to put down an uprising in 1946. So um, there's, a, there's a story there. There's another side to the coin, if you like, the story about the birth of the welfare state. But um, aside, from, aside from Britain of course there was, um, there was Ireland in um, 1945. Sean, what was, what was Ireland up to in, in, the, in the 40s and 50s in terms of that, that move towards social democracy and Keynesianism? But um, when I say social democracy I'm using it in the term Mel meant it, the idea that social democracy was supposed to be a step, wasn't it? Parliamentary step towards socialism. What was Ireland doing in that period?
2: Well, just to begin with the North, um, the North was actually the most militant part of the UK during the war. It recorded the most um, strike days per thousand workers, how to measure strike activity. Um, you've seen the emergence of a vibrant shop stewards movement in the war industries. Um, so the workers were staking their claim. They were in conflict with management. Management was totally incompetent in, in some of these industries. Um, but But industrially, the workers were flexing their muscle in the North. And that, had, that translated in the sort of uh, leftward political shift that, that you saw in Britain and right across Europe. Like the North wasn't immune to that political shift des- despite its difficulties. Um, the Communist Party, for example, had a thousand members or claimed to have a thousand members in Belfast and had a real sort of influence on Labour politics. Sorry, sorry, what do you mean claimed? <laughs> It's in their official documents, but I don't, there's no membership list to substantiate that point. But there was no doubt that the, commun- the communist politics and left-wing labour politics had, had taken hold in Belfast and, and across the north, um, seen the growth of the NILP. Uh, in the 1945 elections, labourist candidates of, of varying sort of shades, from communists to, to right-wing uh, independent labour types, uh, won nearly as many votes as the Unionist Party. Um, so Union Unionism, the big house unionism, was coming under pressure from organised labour, both industrially and politically. And at the same time, they were coming under pressure from the British Labour government that was saying, look, you really need to extend the, the post-war settlement to the welfare state to, to the north. And the, the Unionist Prime Minister at the time, Basil Brooke, he was deeply sectarian, but, He was also a shrewd populist. He understood political tactics, political strategy. He understood how to shore up uh, unionist support. And he really won the argument within his own unionist party to extend the welfare state, the NHS, free education, and so on to to the north. And he knew he could do that, and that would benefit the unionist party because they would be able to paint that as the benefits of the union. And at the same time, you know, uh, criticised the the Catholic nationalist population for taking the benefits of the of the British welfare state whilst at the same time being disloyal.
0: And what was the long term impact? Well, yeah, what was the long term impact of the introduction of the welfare state to, to the north of Ireland, or some of the impacts?
1: Well, well, I suppose um, uh, access to public sector jobs. Um, which were denied largely uh, to the Catholic community, I suppose, um, and uh, also access to education, um, and albeit segregated, um, based on religious lines. Um, but free education created a generation that, uh, towards the end of the 60s, would um, transform politics here. And, and um, uh, I suppose, uh, challenged the Unionist domination of, you know, for that time would have been 50 years old, one single party rule with um, very draconian uh, and repressive powers. So um, it, it was, it wasn't insignificant in terms of uh, what, it create, what it created in terms of the abilities um, in the nationalist community in the North at that time. Because remember, Ireland is still a contested space. It's not that far away from from the treaty and the creation of two states, a sectarian state in the North and a confessional state in the South.
0: Yeah, then we, we haven't even on, talked about yeah. this yet. Yeah. No, we're gonna move on to the South now. What about the South, Sean? What was it's uh, um, Keynesian um, kind of moment after the 40s and 50s, or did it indeed have one at all?
2: Well, the, the, the conservative economic thinking in the, in the South, um, on the part of Fianna Fáil and a much greater degree of Fine Gael meant that Keynesian intervention would be half-arsed. You I mean, you had a few examples of state uh, companies established. Um, uh, what do you call it? Bordnemona, um, ESB. Um, the, Irish
0: Irish. Sugar, the Irish Sugar Company was very important at one point. Chemical uh, Aer Lingus, of course. Irish Life Assurance. Lingus, Mel, you, always, yeah. you always correct me at this point. I always miss one. What's the famous one? Kildare? The National Stud. The National Stud. The National Stud. Horse racing had to be nationalised in
2: Ireland. <laughs> yeah. But the, the, that, the Keynesian intervention was very limited um, on the part of successive governments. It was half assed Was there not those significant house building programmes in that
0: period, in the kind of 40s and 50s, the kind of Fianna four populist approach to, to house building?
2: Yeah, that's, there's, there's that part. You know, there was bit part. Uh, I suppose you called social democratic policies that are introduced during the time. Um, inter party government that uh, was led by Fine Gael did introduce an ambitious social housing program. They entered. They increased certain welfare payments, for example. So there was bit part, uh, like of a welfare state uh, of a, the sort of model that you've seen in in Britain, but it's, it was always half-assed and and not the full type of sort of. Revolution that you that you saw in other parts of Europe, but Ireland also remained didn't it a source of labor for
0: British growth I mean there was huge mass immigration uh, During the 40s and particularly the late 50s into the early 60s My own family went over at that period and I know that a lot of your people went over as well So um, if it wasn't for that immigration into the rebuilding of Britain and indeed America, what position would Ireland have been in?
1: Yeah, we also were the main supplier of beef into the UK as well, so um, there, was no indigenous, there was no drive to set up indigenous food production um, in, the, in uh, the Irish Free State at the time either.
0: Well, our good friend, if, uh, if anyone's read his book, Sins of the Father, and if you haven't, you should. There's some brilliant information about Ireland's role and its, um, its refusal almost to, to process food in Ireland, but rather to export cattle on the hoof into British meat markets, which created jobs in Britain, because it suited the, it suited the, you know, the capitalist class, the Comprador class in Ireland. And that yeah, that that
1: comprador there. class, that comprador class really emerges, and you know that that idea of the gombean man, really sort of takes root in that that particular time. We're still living with the consequences of that today.
2: And uh, it's Connor, Connor's po- book points out as well, that that Ireland's economic fortunes uh, really remain tied to Britain through the. The link to Sterling Party with Sterling was was maintained. Successive great trade agreements incorporated uh, the south of Ireland into Britain's economic sphere. Um, and as you said, like Ireland specialized for a long time in exporting live cattle for the benefit of a large farming class, and that's really the only people who have benefited.
0: Was there never any attempt, or was there an attempt in Ireland to set up a welfare state uh, in? in in terms of the way they set one up in Britain and France and Germany, Sean? Well, you had one man
2: who really attempted it. Um, People would be familiar with Noel Brown, who was the health minister in the inter-party government. And Noel Brown tried to revolutionise the health system. He introduced lots of different improvements. He virtually eradicated TB TB within, uh, I think it was about the space of three years. Um, But that was about as far as he was allowed to go. Um, the mother and child crisis of 1941, that's, that's what people will be familiar with, um, which eventually led to Brown's resignation. Brown really wanted, all he wanted to do was introduce free maternity care for all mothers and free healthcare care for all children up to the age of 16. Um, it wasn't even as far as the, as the British went, um, but it was a vast improvement of what Ireland had, um, but it was blocked by the Catholic church. Uh, the the bishops in Ireland had unrivalled access to public policy in Ireland. Uh, they were still given an effective veto over large parts of public policy. Yeah, they there's saw, a very,
0: uh, there's a very famous letter. Yeah. I actually have a copy of it in the office from Bishop John McQuaid to the government at the I, time, specifically outlining it. why you know why that the why that new piece of legislation would interfere with you know, with, with, um, with Ireland's, if you like, family structure and Ireland's social structure. In particular, of course,
2: it was based on a particular kind of teaching, Sean, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, the Catholic Church um, saw it as a trojan horse for communism. You know, that was, their, that was the source of their opposition to it. Um, and the private doctors' lobby also opposed it, you have to remember, because they, uh, they saw it interfere with their, their profit-making. Um, the, the thing to mention just quickly, uh, that Brown wasn't backed by one, not one of his ministerial colleagues uh, in, in trying to implement that measure. Not even the Labour Party um, TDs, Labour Party ministers. Um, and what that meant, Brown, Brown was eventually defeated. Um, he had to resign, or he felt he had to resign. And that meant that, as you say, Stevie, that Catholic social teaching would continue to inform public policy. Um, church and charities would retain control over large aspects of health and welfare provision. Um, and you see where that got us in terms of handing over the care of our children and, and, and uh, our female population to, to the church. And, well, every, and charities. Time you think, every time you think you've
0: heard of the last nightmare in terms of Irish history and its approach to welfare, and particularly its treatment of women, a new one comes in. I remember the first time, it was about 15 years ago, I heard of symphysiotomy. And the approach to Catholic teaching, how they taught surgery and how they taught um, treatment of women and the idea that in order for a woman to have more than one child if she had more than one or two caesareans, they would just break her hips and force the baby out that way. And um, just absolute fucking horrendous treatment of women. I was listening to a seminar recently, one of our own conferences, Sean, you'll remember the the, 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 the academic who gave the lecture said at one point, Ireland were head of population had more people incarcerated in state institutions than the Soviet Union did. Um, the title of the talk was The Carceral State. Well, who was the academic again? Give me your name, Sean. Sarah Ann Buckley. Sarah Ann Buckley, A yeah, Brilliant talk about the carceral state in Ireland. So and Ireland was a backward state in terms of its treatment of women and children during the 50s and 60s. And, and as you said, it created a kind of half-assed welfare state that was two-tiered, that was part delivered by the private sector, by the charitable sector. And here we are in 2020, and we still have, in the free state, exactly that same system. There's never been more of a demand as a mill for a, an all-Ireland national health service.
1: Well, the, the, the present circumstances have, have brought that home um, more starkly, even if, even today. If you look at the, um, the cases of COVID-19 in the Republic of Ireland, they're largely centred around Dublin. And in any other part of the world, it would be an anomaly. Um, the other two counties great, greatly affected by it are Cavan and Monaghan. Um, the only thing, of course, that could contribute to that would be cross-border um uh, traffic and people, you know, living and working on both sides of the border, um, carrying infection from one jurisdiction with different um restrictions than the other and all that sort of stuff. Just brings the, the, the whole absurdity of, of um uh two systems on this island to, to the fore
2: yeah um just to mention um something else I know we're gonna move on but uh they mentioned something else, another legacy of that period uh, is national wage agreements. You know, The government introduced, decided to introduce national wage agreements and the creation of tripartite labour relations structures that basically brought the Irish trade union movement into the fold, brought them into the part of the state uh, where they would negotiate with the state and with business um, regarding working conditions and wages. Um, and that created a sort of semi-corporatist, uh, industrial relations framework in Ireland, and of course we know the effects of that were that it dumped in a dumping class conflict, um, and laid the foundations for what we would we would know as a social partnership. That's an, um, another important legacy of, of that period
0: in the south. Yeah, and it's, uh, it, it kind of speaks to the the, the point that it's no surprise that Ireland's the only country in Western Europe never ever had any kind of social democratic or labour government. It's had two. It's had right wing governments from its. From its creation uh, in 20. so um, and it looks as if that's going to continue for another short while because of the, um, the green Party it looks mm. like uh, going to coalition. But that's a debate for another day. Let's look back to this idea, this golden period of capitalism, this period of social democracy. It was kind of characterized then wasn't it by a number of really important characteristics. It was, it was too crucial now because people are talking about reintroducing the same things again as if social democracy is the answer to the current crises in capitalism. So you have people talking about you know, regulation of investments and state-led planning. The reintroduction of capital controls has been talked about everywhere and has been introduced in certain circumstances. Um, the the refocus on proper organised labour and the power of workers to increase wages. Um, large public sector, public ownership, you know, and what we're going to do about currency markets. So lots of the things that were in place in the 1950s and 60s, people are now kind of talking about, again, that we'd like to reintroduce to try and, if you like, reboot social democracy in order to save capitalism from itself. Is that the answer, Sean? Are we, are we, have we got a time machine where we can go back to the 1950s and recreate this golden period? Or, as you said, was that period of the 50s and 60s just a blip?
2: Is it just a period in history and it's gone? Well, the golden period is called the golden period for, for, for good reason because it was the, the only short 25-year period that, that led to sustained in, uninterrupted economic growth. Increase in living standards, um, a decline in, in economic inequality, as I've said. But it was the product of very unique historical conditions, um, a very unique uh, balance of, of political forces. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have um, a time machine or a pair of ruby red slippers to, to take, us, take us back there, nor, nor would we want to because in order to get there, we would have to come through the devastation that the Second World War brought uh, to get to that, that position. Um, so there, there, there's limits to, to reflect and nostalgically on that period um, and trying to take we can take inspiration, of course, but trying to recreate that model in very different uh, circumstances.
0: Mel, it's... it's and of it's, course... It's, we, we... I was going no, to... Sorry, Mel, I was going to just say that, that social democracy then at least had within it its theory for like, was the idea that this was a parliamentary road to socialism. That was the theory of social democratic politicians. And is that the case now? If you see, When you hear the term social democracy now, what does it mean to you?
1: Well, it, 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 it can't hold up now um, because we don't have the bulwark of the Soviet Union. We don't have that example of, of, um, of a different type of society. And, and there are at least one generation, maybe a generation and a half, that have never had the experience of um, society that's organized along different lines and it comes back to that. Um, David Harvey quote, "We're all neoliberals, whether we like it or not. And it, you know for, for me, the I suppose the, 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 the path of divergence on the left is whether um, the social uh, democratic compromise of the, the um, 40s, 50s and 60s is, is the pinnacle of what we can aspire to. Or do we aspire to something else? Um, a worker-led and a worker-owned commonwealth?
0: So if you uh, if go, go back to Sean's point there about the 60s, about the social democracy and the golden period, when you look at it historically over a 200 year period of capitalism, and when you see that reduction in inequality, at least in the in the West, and when you, when you see it graphically and then it looks like a blip in history as if it was a mistake, as if capitalism didn't actually mean to do this. So rather than it being a a parliamentary road to socialism—it was a mistake. Capitalism fucked up, and then it realised. Come the late 60s, early 70s, actually, lads, we need to get back on track here. Um, and that's the period we're moving into next, isn't it, Sean? That, that short period of social democracy didn't actually last that long, did it? Because come the end of the 60s, end of the 70s, capitalism starts to run into a few, a uh, few of its own buffers. What, what are some of those buffers, Sean, that begin to, if you like, unpick the social democratic compromise?
2: Yeah, well, yeah. That, that sort of compromise or that settlement uh, begins to break down and it's, it's really capital that, that enters into difficulty and, and uh, pulls out of the, of the compromise or, or breaks that sort of unwritten agreement. Um, capital at the time was suffering from falling rates of profit um, and that was in part due to the emergence of industrial development in, in parts of the third world. Japan, Korea, for for example, come online and become uh, better at producing certain types of products than at a cheaper cost than the uh, than Western firms were were able to. Uh, trade union militancy um, and wage demands um, were putting pressure on on capital, and that was and capital was. Uh, was struggling to fulfill them, or at least saying that they, they couldn't fulfill them. And at the same time, welfare demands were no longer being made by, being met by progressive taxation.
0: Yeah, very good. But there was also, um, there's a phrase, isn't there, capitalism never sleeps and capitalist intellectuals never sleep either. There was a background to this resurgence of capital in the late 60s. It wasn't just the economies, it's themselves that were going into some sort of crisis. There was a lot of thinking going on in the background, Mel, wasn't there?
1: The um, you know to say that this happened in the 1960s uh, uh, you know, is really a mistake too, because um, the the ruling class were plotting uh, and planning uh, against welfareism right since the, the end of the Second World War. So you had um, shadowy organisations like the Montpellerin Society emerging. Um, you had um, um, the ideas of Frederick von Hayek. Um, influencing people like um, Milton Friedman And, and so the, the fight back is brewing um, Somewhere um, ac- across Europe and America At that particular time Ready for crises that emerged in the late 60s, early 70s Yeah,
0: it's not known very much I looked it up when I was preparing for the podcast Because I always wondered who'd set up the Mont Pelerin Society is still going strong, by the way And uh, a lot of the funding actually came from the Bank of England Would you believe it? to set up the Mont Pelerin Society. It's currently funded by the Atlas Foundation, which is um, supported by ExxonMobil and the Koch brothers, needless to say, the two men who helped support Trump's campaign. Sean, you wanted to come in there, mate?
2: Yeah, just we were talking about the, the anti-colonial wave that, that sort of emerged uh, in the post immediate post-war period into the 50s and 60s. Of course, that was another threat to capital uh, that was emerging because the newly independent states, or the would-be newly independent states, were not only looking for independence, they were looking for sovereignty. And what sovereignty meant was control over their economic destinies, control over their natural resources, um, which capital, of course, had a had a huge interest in. Um, and the sort of neoliberals that, that were working in the background were also responding to this. They were thinking, well, how can we limit the sovereignty that's being exercised by these... Uh, former colonial uh, states in which we have a have a huge interest.
0: Yeah, well, clearly things were coming to a crisis point at the end of the 1960s and, uh, and early 1917, as we're going to talk about in our next podcast. Um, an opportunity arose for international capital, particularly for the, the American empire and American imperialism in South America and the challenges of South America. Where do we want to go next for our next podcast? What are we going to talk about?
1: well we we need to look at the social upheaval of the 19th late 1960s the um the birth of national liberation movements across africa and the politics that, that um underpinned that the fear that that sent through the um through the ruling class and of course and uh, the difficulties that that started to emerge here in ireland um and um of course the um i, I suppose the crises that emerged in the early 1970s
0: all right, we're going to leave it there. We'll leave you with a tidbit when we when we, when we we um, come back, and we talk together next time, we're going to be looking specifically at um, what's known on the left as the first 9-11, and that, of course, is the coup against the end-day socialist government of Chile in 1973. We're going to start there, uh, called as it was by the neoliberals who supported it, the Chilean experiment, and we're going to look at what happened to that experiment, what happened in Chile, and how it became a model for the rest of the planet, almost, in terms of um, the birth of neoliberalism or the neoliberal term. So, Lads, if you don't mind, I think we'll leave it there. We'll say goodbye to everyone and slang the foil and we'll see you next time. Tune in again.
1: Okay.
0: Slang.